Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Job 20, chapter 21. Then Job answered and said, keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. After me is my complaint against man. Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offsprings are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their, their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their Children dance, they sing to the tambourine and the lyre, and they rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hands? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often, how often is that the lamp of the wicked is put out and their calamity comes upon them? That God distribute pains in his anger and they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see this, their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For, that, for what they do, they care for their houses after them. When the number of their months is cut off, will any teach God knowledge and see that he judges those who are not high? One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist, and other dies in bitterness of soul and never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me, for you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clouds, the clouds of the valley are sweet to him. 
all mankind follows after him, and those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. The dear brother who hired me and taught me how to paint a little over 10 years ago, hired me for his little business in Louisville, Kentucky. I was a wide-eyed Minnesota boy trying to figure out how to live in Louisville, Kentucky, trying to figure out how to do seminary and life with two little kids and trying to figure out how to paint. This dear brother brought me on, helped me in many ways, uh, taught me how to paint, gave me a job, and he had this little phrase he liked to repeat whenever we gave him a less than ideal progress report. Uh, and you know if you're doing blue collar work, less than optimistic or less than positive progress reports are common. And so you know that this phrase that he would say in response was also common. But when things weren't going as we had hoped they would go, he would look at us and say, that's the way it goes sometimes in the big city. And it gets to be a joke and it gets to be kind of a, a funny and humorous way that he would deal with challenges, but uh, that's true, isn't it? There's a lot of things you just simply look at and say, well, that's not ideal and that's just the way it goes sometimes in the big city. It's far from the soothing response my kids are looking for, but it seems I'm often a parent who has to break it to them. Life isn't fair. Life isn't fair sometimes. And if I'm honest, I'm not sure if it's me or my kids who need that reminder more frequently. Right? Kids need to hear, I'm sorry, it's just not fair. Things aren't equal. Stuff just doesn't go your way sometimes. But if we're honest, parents, adults, right? Oftentimes that's the hard pill that we're trying to swallow to get through the day. Life isn't fair. This isn't fair, but uh, this is the way things are. Uh, none of us really appreciate the reminder um, if anybody says that's just the way the ball bounces or that's the way the cookie crumbles, that doesn't fall upon us as good news. Um, but often those are words that are spoken to us. But these phrases, these sentences, these idioms, these well-worn phrases uh, grasp for us and communicate for us that life is full of unpleasant realities. Coming to grips with that can range from funny to slightly annoying, and it can range all the way from slight chuckle to the complete opposite end of the spectrum where we're ready to tear something or someone apart, or we're ready to just hide in the basement and de be depressed until something takes us from this planet. Dealing with life's unpleasant realities is not easy but it's something all of us need to do. As we come to Job 21 today, we're presented an important wisdom lesson. Here it is, don't miss it. Important wisdom lesson, life isn't fair. While we and Job's foolish friends desperately need this lesson, it's also clear that there's more to be said than simply life isn't fair. It's a wisdom lesson all of us need, but there's more to be said simply than simply life isn't fair. And so that's why this big idea I want to draw out of the text for you this morning is so important. Okay, so as we look through Job 21 and as I try to pull uh, the facts and realities together and present it to you as one uh, cohesive point, I want you to understand this from Job 21. Life is unfair. 
Yet, we should persevere because God is just. Like so much of the wisdom our parents give us in a heated moment, there's truth there, but there's more to be said uh, to get the whole wise reality, right? So life isn't fair, yet we should persevere because God is just. Job's friends have wrongly fused, connected, um, soldered together God's justice with the physical wellness of people. They've put those two things together wrongly. In their minds, God's goodness requires good people to be rewarded with healthy and wealthy lives, while those enduring hardship and pain are only the sinful scoundrels. They've wrongly fused God's goodness to the, the pleasant realities of people's lives. They've, they've said, good people have good outcomes, and God's goodness depends upon it. They've wrongly put those things too closely together. Job's response in chapter 21 demolishes that argument that says good people must have healthy and wealthy lives for God to be just. Job points out gaping holes in that philosophy. Yet even though Job proves that life is unfair, he's still a man persevering by faith in the goodness and justice of God. Though Job is quick to show us accurately that life really truly is unfair, Job does not become a man who gives up, and he does not become a man who gives in and fails to live by faith. Job perseveres by faith even though he's terribly aware of the unfairness of life. Our passage points out four areas in which life is unfair, and in each of these areas, Job shows us how to persevere by faith. So I want to walk us through this passage, coming to that main idea that life is unfair, yet we should persevere because God is just. I want to hold up that idea, that big, uh, big aim, that big goal by pointing out four particular areas of unfairness and difficulty where we should persevere by faith. First, we'll look at unfair friends and how Job perseveres in their presence. Secondly, we'll look at unfair rewards, how Job perseveres in the presence of unfair rewards. Thirdly, we'll point out the unfair hardships in life and how Job perseveres by faith. And then lastly, we'll look at Satan's lies and how Job perseveres by faith in the midst of Satan's lies. So let's deal with this first point. Let's deal with Job's unfair friends. In verses one through six, Job is found again calling his friends to listen to him. How many times have we heard Job say, listen to me? They have been found eager to speak to him, but here he requests the comfort of their closed mouths. Sounds like something my my mother would have said to me as a young boy. What's the most helpful thing I can do in the kitchen? Just get out of the way, right? Job says, the most comforting thing you can do, friends, is to close your mouths. Job isn't optimistic about changing their minds as he prepares to speak. He isn't optimistic that he's going to correct his miserable comforters. A jaded sarcasm seems to be motivating his words as we read in verse 3. Bear with me and I'll speak. And after I've spoken, mock on. 
Let me, let me interrupt your mockery for a little bit. Let me interrupt your miserable friend, friending for a moment. Let me say something, and then you can get back to making my life miserable. Job is clearly not having a good time. Job is clearly not pleased with his friends, and he, but he calls them to listen. If you're looking at this chapter in isolation, maybe you've not been here the last number of weeks that we've been working through these first 20 chapters. Maybe you don't know the book of Job. And if you look at this chapter in isolation, you'll look at Job and you'll think, wow, that is one grumpy old man. But if you consider Job's words in its context, if you consider how persistently cruel and oblivious his friends have been to his troubles, you'll understand that these perhaps jaded and perhaps sarcastic words are fitting for the moment. His friend's lack of sympathetic awareness gets his rebuke when he says in verse 5, look at me, look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. It's as if these men have closed their eyes to the intense suffering that Job is enduring. Have you ever had somebody speak to you and it's like, you are totally oblivious to what is going on here? Read the room, right? Have you heard that before? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar looked like excellent men and fiercely loyal friends when they braved the danger to come and sit silently with Job and his grief back in chapter 2. But every single time that they've opened their mouths since then, has only served to make Job's pain worse. Not only has Job faced the raging powers of Satan, but his friends have fallen prey to the evil one's schemes and have been terribly unfair in their assessment of Job's situation and unfair in the way that they have treated him. So you understand the situation, right? Job is enduring great hardship. He's lost everything. He's in utter turmoil and pain and excruciating loss. And then his friends are willfully choosing to be with him and to open their mouths and to speak to him. And everything they say, it just it doesn't fit. It's not helpful. It's really, truly unfair. Every time that they've spoken to him, it's hurt him further, and it's been painful. Though Job's friends have treated him unfairly, he hasn't joined them in their cruelty. Notice that. They've been cruel to him, but he's not been cruel to them, and he hasn't simply given in to their pressure. We've said this a number of times, that it's remarkable that Job doesn't just say, whatever, guys, you're right, I'm just going to go to sleep. Just pass the alcohol, pass the wine, and let me just move on. I'm tired of fighting. Job doesn't give in, and he doesn't become like them. Job is found persisting in his trust in God, even as his friends heap unearned guilt and shame on him. They've considered him wicked without any proof. They've unfairly assumed the worst of him. Any of you experienced that before? People assume the worst of you, treat you as if you're a deeply foul person, when it's simply not true. Job's confrontational words may be hard to read, but when you compare them to how you and I have and would respond to a similar situation, it's pretty clear he is persevering in faith. These words are hard to read, right? 
But if somebody wrote down how you respond to friends treating you unfairly, I bet those words would be hard to read as well. Even though his friends are treating him unfairly, this is a messy situation. Job is very clearly persevering in faith, clinging to the Lord, even though his friends are treating him so poorly. Job's perseverance in the midst of unfair friendships is a helpful illustration of the instruction given to us by the Apostle Peter. Peter is writing to servants who wouldn't have the same freedoms that you and I have in our places of employment, but there's much to be learned from these words. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2 how the gospel of Christ enables us to suffer unjust situations, unfair situations, and how these same situations give us an opportunity to glorify God by following Jesus' example. Peter doesn't just say, hey, life is fair, too bad, get over it. He doesn't say life is fair and nothing should ever be hard. Peter teaches the church, he says, listen, life is hard. God has given you an opportunity to follow Jesus and glorify God in the midst of that hardship. Listen to these words. Peter writes, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. That's a lot there. That's plenty there, isn't it? With all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when he was treated unfairly, Jesus did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Saints, that's a beautiful picture of your Savior, isn't it? Brother, sister, life is terribly unfair sometimes, isn't it? Life is unfair. Even the youngest among us will say, yes, life is unfair. Many of you have a very clear situation in your mind where you're thinking, this situation and that situation, that's just simply unfair. Friends, family, spouses, pastors, fellow church members, co-workers, and the rest can treat you wrongly. What should you do? What does 1 Peter 2 tell us to do? First and foremost, what should you do when you are being treated unfairly? Remember Jesus. Even if it's a pastor, even if it's a pastor, a servant of Jesus, even if it's a Christian parent who has wronged you, remember Jesus. Jesus, was, Jesus willingly chose to endure such cruelty, such as you are experiencing. He chose to endure it for your good. Jesus entrusted himself to his Father's just judgment, and he endured 
What should you do? You should endure, and as you're enduring, you should remember Jesus, who willfully chose to endure unfair people so that he could save us and glorify his Father. Secondly, what should you do in seasons when friends and other people are being terribly unfair? Remember Jesus is first. Secondly, remember the great reward that is promised to those who persevere under such burdens. You got terrible pastors. You got a brutal spouse. You have friends that just don't seem to understand what you're going through. Remember that Christ has promised blessings to those who endure. Matthew 5, Jesus promises this. He says, blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus doesn't say, listen, when people treat you unfairly, it's only going to last for like a day or two. He doesn't say, everybody gets one and then the rest of your life is going to be smooth. He doesn't say it'll get sorted out in the next couple of years. No, Jesus says, see it. Look past it. Look beyond it. See that God is going to reward you greatly and then endure it. Understand that this particular task, this particular relationship that is so full of unfairness is in your life so that God can give you greater rewards in the future kingdom. Right? Listen, if you only had people who treated you fairly, your rewards and glory would be fewer. But because there are people who treat you unfairly, you have an opportunity to trust God. You have an opportunity to glorify God in the midst of that situation. And you have a sweet promise to you that says, by doing this work of persevering and trusting God in the midst of that awful relationship, God is storing up blessings and privileges, and pleasures, and I don't know what vacations and trips look like in the new heavens and the new earth, but the Lord is storing up a great prize for you through your persevering in that difficult relationship. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you have been called to suffer. This is a hard word, but this is not a word I understood when I endured my hardest suffering in my early 20s. If you are in Christ, you are called to suffer. When Jesus calls you to follow him, he calls you to carry your cross. And part of what that means is that you are going to suffer in this life, and it's not because you made some mistake. A lot of us think that if we just obey Jesus, if we just do the wise thing, we're going to have a comfortable life. It's not true. Hear me, young Christians, particularly. You've got some rough stuff in front of you. But Jesus says it's worth it. Jesus says it's worth it. If you are in Christ, you have been called to suffer. At times, that will mean you will have cruel friends. But Christ suffered so that your own cruelty to your friends wouldn't be counted against you. Understand. You will have cruel friends. 
And there will be times where someone will be praying about you because you're the cruel friend. And Christ came and suffered, not only so that you could be rewarded, but so that your cruel friendship, your miserable comforting could be forgiven. And so that you could suffer with the sure promise that your sufferings will be greatly rewarded in heaven. Anybody ever done some really gross, stinky, hard things at work? And you've had to stop, take a deep breath, and remind yourself, I'm getting paid for this. I think Jesus speaks to us and promises us very similar situation. You have to look at unfair situations, unfair relationships, take a deep breath and remind yourself, Jesus will pay me for this. Jesus will reward me in this situation. This is not pro bono plumbing, right? This is unfairness that the Lord will reward if I trust him and persevere. Job persevered by faith as he endured unfair friends, and he also persisted as he noticed the unfair compensation in the world. So let's look at this second point where Job points out that rewards are also unfair. Throughout the book of Job, we have heard it repeated that the righteous prosper while the wicked are cut down. Job's friends have been an echo chamber replaying that message over and over and over. The counsel of his friends isn't wrong per se, but it's missing some terribly important facts. In verse 7, Job says, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? To these friends who keep saying, Job, wicked men suffer like you, therefore you are wicked. Godly men are blessed You are not blessed, therefore you are not a godly man. Job's response in verse 7 is, why do the wicked live? Why do they reach old age and grow mighty in power? Then in verses 8 through 13, Job lists, it's almost like a bullet point of examples and instances where this exact question is played out in the world. He lists all the great pleasures that the wicked enjoy in this life, even as they overtly reject God according to verses 14 and 15. The words that Job quotes in in verses 14 and 15 may be the very words that wicked men are saying, who is God? Why would I waste my time praying? Or it may simply be the posture of a wicked person's heart. They may not be an uh, uh, aggressive atheist, but they're just like, I'm busy. I'm busy doing wicked things that make me happy and comfortable. I don't even care about God. Job's pointing those situations, those realities in the world out, and he says, how does your philosophy, friends, deal with that reality, that wicked people are compensated handsomely in this life. And it seems they live long lives with comfortable deaths and then it's just over. This section is pretty straightforward and easy to understand. There may be a number of foreign images of health and wellness. Not all of us would say, look at that guy. His pails are full of milk. We may not say it that way, but these these unfamiliar images are simply saying the wicked are wealthy, their wicked are healthy. There might be references to unfamiliar musical instruments here, but it's pretty clear that Job is pointing out to his simple friends that life isn't as fair as they make it out to sound. Job's friends, 
Make the world seem like a very simple life where you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Job says that doesn't match with the reality that all of us see. D.A. Carson helpfully writes, the tit-for-tat morality system of Job's three interlocutors cannot handle the millions of tough cases. Moreover, like them, Job does not want to impugn God's justice, but facts are facts. It is not virtue, even in the cause of defending God's justice, to distort the truth and twist reality. Job goes beyond his friends who seem to be wanting to defend God's just character. He goes beyond them and says, you can't defend God's justice by silencing facts. You and I recognize this, this reality of unfair compensation in the world, unfair rewards, but we really don't like to think about it, do we? Some of my most angry moments in my life are because I've been thinking about this reality too much. We all know that Hollywood is home to some of the wealthiest people in the world and some of the most disgusting sin and outspoken sinners in the world. Those two things live in the same home. Perverts sell each other their Malibu homes and attend ceremonies in which their names are cemented into the walk of fame. God-hating atheists collect expensive cars while serial adulterers ride in luxury private jets until they grow old and are buried in posh, exclusive cemeteries. That's reality, isn't it? And Hollywood only represents a pattern that is repeated throughout the world. This isn't some silly preacher ragging on Hollywood. What we see in Hollywood is clearly reflected all over the world. Wicked men are thriving everywhere. It's communicated to us through ungodly news sources, and so it doesn't seem that way. But you start putting court cases together with who is fashionable right now, and you start to see wicked people are doing quite well. Sinful scoundrels seem to be everybody's favorite people in the world. Palaces and country clubs are well stocked with Jezebels and those that desire the heads of those who love Jesus. Many mock God their entire comfortable lives before their ashes are placed respectfully in gold urns decked with jewels. Job won't let his friends be simpletons who fail to account for the reality of unfair rewards in this life. Job, life is fair. You do good. God rewards you. If you are being judged, it's because you've been a sinner. And Job says, what about all the wicked people who are living very comfortably and then they die with their family around them and then they are no more? What about that situation? Doesn't that seem desperately unfair? Doesn't that seem to poke a huge hole in your philosophy, Eliphaz? When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, God delivered a curse upon his fallen creation. What was once simply described as very good was now under his painful discipline. 
And you know that in your own life, right? You've got framed pictures in your house that say, that was a moment that was very good. And then you've got moments that seem to be framed and super glued in your brain that you can't get out that says, that was not good. We all understand that there are parts of life that is still good, yet at the same time, we are very clearly under a curse. Life is clearly not the way it's supposed to be. It's clearly not all good. Job's friends have a strong grasp on how things ought to be, how things ought to be in a godly home or society with the obedient being quickly rewarded, right? That's how I want to parent my children. I want my children to grow up in a home where the the bad kids get punished and the good kids get rewarded. I want my children to be friends with other people where bad things are squashed and good things are supported. That's the way it's supposed to be, but that's not the way it is under the curse, is it? That's the way we'd like it to be in our city, in our society, but, but God's response to his fallen creation isn't quite that simple. This is a tricky but important lesson we all need to learn. Even now as I'm expressing these things, I'm trying to be careful and make sure I'm balanced and not accusing God of, of being a bad father who lets bad children continue being bad. I want to be careful because God's curse isn't as simple as we might want it to be. This is tricky. Psalm 1 rightly tells us that the righteous person who, quote, walks not in the counsel of the wicked is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he, the righteous person, does, that person prospers. Psalm 1 goes on to say that the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. This is without a doubt true. Hear me. Psalm 1 is true. Absolutely true. And yet, Job says at the end of verse 16, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. Psalm 1 says that those who walk not in the counsel of the wicked enjoy enjoy prosperity. And Job says... I've not been walking in the counsel of the wicked, but I'm not enjoying prosperity. You need to see this tension that what Job is enduring and experiencing seems to call into question whether or not Psalm 1 is true. You need to feel that tension. Job is not only proclaiming his persevering allegiance to the Lord at the end of verse 16, but he is saying that we cannot interpret Psalm 1 too simplistically. Job's friends are taking Psalm 1 and saying, if you walk in in God's ways, you will prosper. If you do wicked, you will suffer. They're reading Psalm 1, if that were possible. They are taking that truth and they're reading it too simplistically. And you and I need to be careful not to do the same thing. God's curse upon creation isn't unjust in the end, but it most certainly is marked with many instances of unfair rewarding along the way. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is, you, you need to be careful to hold these two things in tension. Does God reward the good man, the righteous man? Absolutely. Psalm 1 isn't lying. 
Is it also true that the righteous are going to suffer? Absolutely. Both of those things are true because the curse of Genesis 3 that is upon the whole world is not smooth. It's not clean and simple that we all, like we all wish it were. Wisdom requires us to deal with all of the facts. A number of you have been praying that God would make you wise. A number of parents were requesting that God would make them wise. What do you need to do to be wise? You need to not ignore any of the facts. You need to deal with all of the facts. You need to listen to the crying child and the not crying child, both of them, right? You need to take in all of the facts if you're going to be wise. We need to listen to the facts and not just those that fit into our neat little system. We look at problems and we think, well, if I put them all together like this, it's, it's pretty clean and simple and I, I can move on. Put that on the shelf and say, I've solved that problem and moved on. But life under the curse, life here on this planet is not neat and simple like that. And we can't just rush through it with messy philosophies that ignore the facts. A right understanding of God's justice requires us to deal with the reality that many wicked people are living more comfortably than those who love the Lord. You already know that to be true. Brothers and sisters will be martyred today and this week. They will be burned alive because they refuse to deny Christ. All the while, God-hating people will start those fires and go to their palatial homes. This is a crazy part of the way the world that we live in, but we cannot ignore that reality. We have to deal with it. Not only are we living under a curse in which the wicked are unfairly rewarded, but hardships also appear to be unfairly distributed. God is just, but we are living in a world, we are living under a curse where the wicked do get unfairly rewarded from time to time, and they are also unfairly experiencing hardship. And so let's look at this third point where Job points out the unfairness of hardships. In verses 17 through 26, Job points out that God's discipline doesn't neatly fall on sinners in the way his friends have described. Job says, how often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. Some see what Job is pointing out and some will respond to this harsh reality according to verse 19 that says, God stores up the iniquity of wicked people for their children. Sure, sometimes wicked people don't get punished, but God passes that punishment on to their children. And Job questions the justness of that argument. Even if God stores up the punishment one man deserves and pours it out on his son, doesn't that mean that sometimes the wicked prosper and never know God's judgment? This point makes it clear that his friends are wrong to assume Job's guilt. And maybe Job is suffering for his father's sins or maybe even his great-grandfather's. Job is saying, you will quickly recognize that the wicked aren't always getting punished as they should be, 
But sometimes that man's wickedness gets passed down to his son. And so Job is saying, you're terribly wrong to just assume I'm in the wrong because I'm suffering. Because according to your own arguments, I might be suffering for the sins that my father committed that God never punished. In verse 23 and following, Job points out the observation that some people enjoy a life of prosperity before they die, quote, full of vigor, while others live lives of poverty and die in, quote, bitterness of soul. Then in verse 26, Job says, both of these stories end in death and decay. People who are prosperous and die in full vigor, those who are in poverty and die in soul, it seems that they just die and it's all equal at the end. It doesn't really matter. We all become worm food in the end. And Job says, where's the fairness in that? By pointing out the existence of sinful people who live in comfort and never taste suffering like him, Job has clearly poked a gaping hole in his friend's arguments against him. Life under the curse is more complicated than these men account for. Listen, if people seem remarkably confident and their philosophy seems particularly strong, it's often because they're not taking in all of the facts. I know a very high percentage of the things that can be known in the world if I ignore half of it. Right? Job's friends are confident. They think their philosophy is firm and strong, but he says, you're ignoring an incredible amount of reality. You're ignoring a remarkable amount of people's stories. It's not accurate to simply say sin equals pain and pain equals sin. End of story. It's not accurate. You're not accounting for all of the facts. Job's friends think that God's discipline of sin happens within a short time span. But Job has clearly dismantled that idea. They think sin on Monday, judgment on Friday. They think good deeds on Tuesday equals paycheck on Friday. And Job is saying God doesn't work that way and the world is so full of instances to prove that wrong. Until the Lord gives us wisdom, religious people like you and me are all like Job's friends. We think God will give us daily or weekly paychecks for our good deeds and never let harm come to us if we're doing the right thing. Anybody else feel that way? We think giving to the church will mean God will quickly put money in our bank account. We think avoiding sexual sin should mean we won't have to endure a painful breakup or prolonged singleness. We think daily Bible reading will keep us from chronic pain and weekly attendance to worship and prayer gatherings should result in a peaceful marriage and enjoyable, well-paying job. Maybe the way I've phrased it here, you're like, I don't think that. But how do you respond when you've been doing these things and then things go sideways? Right? You may not be thinking, I'm putting money in that wooden box so that God takes care of me. You may not be thinking that way. You may not be thinking, I'm going to keep myself pure so that God will give me a wife. You may not be thinking that way per se, but what happens when God doesn't give you a wife and you've kept yourself pure? 
What happens when you're faithfully giving to God's ministry and you're finding yourself unable to continue paying for cable? You find in yourself a sense that this isn't fair. I've been generous. I've been generous. In those moments, we see that we've been working with a sense that God's going to take care of us and that God's going to pay us in a short space of time because we've been doing the right thing. Brothers and sisters, we're thinking like Eliphaz. We're thinking like Zophar and Bildad. It's common amongst religious people to think that God's going to take care of me and give me a comfortable life if I keep choosing not to go with my friends who are doing the wrong stuff. The childish thinking of Job's friends led them to believe that sinners are quickly and fairly punished. They imagined God to be an all-seeing and ever-present referee, always blowing the whistle at just the right time. But Job points out that life doesn't work that way. Penalties are not fairly distributed in life. Hardships are unfair. Brothers, sisters, are you with me? Do you hear this? It's not equal. All of us know this, and yet it's hard to admit. Some mass murderers take their lives before they can stand trial and suffer for their crimes. Some rapists have wealth to silence victims and witnesses. Abortion doctors, pornographers, and Nazis enjoy cushy retirements while faithful pastors die of cancer during COVID isolation before they can watch their daughters finish college. Loving wives and gentle mothers are snatched in car accidents while the abusive drunk driver walks away with a stiff neck. It's just not fair. Asaph, the psalmist, wrestled with this harsh reality. In Psalm 73, he tells about a time when he had nearly abandoned faith in God's goodness. He says in Psalm 73 that he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph couldn't help but notice how wicked people had healthy bodies and no pangs until death. These people get richer as their sins get grosser. They verbally mock God and still thrive in every possible way. And Asaph says, I coveted that. I wanted that. Asaph is then helped by the Holy Spirit when he says, well, when I thought, thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I was worn out, I was weary as I was living in this unfair world. I tried to understand it. And then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. The unfairness of the world, the unfairness of hardship was a burden. It was wearisome until the Holy Spirit helped Asaph discern the end that these wicked will face. Asaph was weary and discouraged by looking at God's judgment and he was looking at it with reading glasses. He was looking at God's justice, his judgment in this range right in front of him. But when he used binoculars, things came into a comforting focus. God's justice isn't fully and fairly seen in the short term, but in the long term, God's justice is perfect and true. Don't read God's justice with bifocals. Read God's providence. Read his justice with binoculars. 
though it doesn't all happen in our timing, God's justice prevails. God's justice happens on his schedule, not yours. The final judgment of all people after death had not been revealed to Job, but he understood that the general curse on creation left aspects of God's justice unanswered. Job didn't know what was happening after death. Job didn't know what God had planned, but Job understood by looking at the world, by looking at how the curse worked itself out, in sinful humanity, Job understood that there were some questions that were not yet answered. Job didn't know about the great white throne of God's justice that awaits all of us after death. But the Spirit teaches us in Revelation 20. In that chapter, the Apostle John says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And the apostles saw the dead, the great and the small, and they were all standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And even the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. People had died and been thrown off of boats and buried at sea. People had died thousands of years prior and had been amongst death and Hades, and the apostle tells us, what Asaph saw, that there's a, a judgment that comes after death. Death and our bodies becoming word, worm food is not the end of the story. Life may be terribly unfair in a thousand different ways, but that does not mean that God is not just. It does not mean that the wicked have somehow escaped God's just rule. Job was frustrated and confused because life is unfair and wicked people seem to get away unpunished. But you and I have been taught more. We said it last week, Job had a spark, a small little light of the reality. You and I have been given so much more. We know that every single sin and offense will be fully and justly dealt with either at the cross where Jesus bore the iniquities of everyone who turns to him in humble faith or in the eternal torments of hell for everyone who chooses to go their own way apart from Christ. Life is full of unfairness and if you see nothing beyond death, you will believe that God is unjust. But rest assured... God has made a plan for his justice to be dealt with. All of the unfair things will be dealt with at the great white throne. If you're a sinner, you will endure eternal conscious torment in hell because God is just. But if you're a sinner that trusts in Jesus, you will look at the cross and see that all of your, your condemned deeds have already been dealt with by Christ. God is just he does not sweep sins under the rug. Nobody gets away with anything. Nobody. 
All these people who think they can silence their witnesses with hush money, all these people who think that they can kill themselves in a jail cell and get out of paying back what they owe, no one escapes. No one escapes. Praise God, there's a way that isn't hell. <laughs> Praise God that my sins, my wickedness has been dealt with justly by God at the cross. The hardships of this life are not measured out according to what is fair, but we can be assured that none will consider God unfair when he finally exercises his final judgment upon the wicked. After death, the wicked will pay for what they've done and the kindness God has shown them in this life while the saints will rejoice in the Lamb of God who's taken away our sins. Lastly, as we bring our time in Job 21 to an end, we see the fourth, fourth point, Satan's lies. In verses 27 through 34, Job addresses his friends directly again. He calls out their pattern of speaking to him, and he says, Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. As they have challenged his understanding, so now Job challenges theirs. He says, Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Job's point in this section is that everyone knows about the fact that wicked people escape destruction and are spared many hardships that they rightly deserve. As his friends have said, Job, don't you, haven't you learned? Don't you understand? Job says the same thing. Everybody knows that the world is unfair. Job's point is to correct the erring judgment of his friends and the demonic lies that are flowing through them to attack Job. There are many things that these men have said that are true, but their presentation of those things as the whole truth is simply wrong. With clear and pointed finality, Job rejects their counsel in verse 34 when he says, how then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There's nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Absolute rejection of the philosophy of these friends. As Job calls out his friends for behaving as enemies and shows how their counsel is actually evil schemes of falsehood, these, men's, these men have leveled false accusations against him, and in this pile of lying accusations, we are reminded that Job's trouble was all initiated by Satan, the great opponent and accuser of the righteous. It's not just friends with their ideas, but Satan has been working to tear down Job and to get him to curse God. Job doesn't know that the great schemer and enemy of his soul is behind all this, but he rejects Satan's lies with the careful yet passionate rebuttal of chapter 21. Job isn't able to say, Satan, I rebuke thee. But in rebuking his friends, he's rejecting Satan's lies. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, we don't want you to be ignorant of Satan's designs. And we don't want you to be outwitted by Satan. Job shows us an incredible example of what that means to know the evil one's designs and to how to reject them. As Job resists his friend's lies, he is resisting the devil. 
The Apostle James teaches us to do the same in the face of accusations from friends or the voices in our head. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Job could have laid down and said, whatever, all of this wrestling for the truth is hard. I just want to be done. He could have just given in. But he resists his friends and their false teaching. And in so doing, he resists the devil, submitting himself to the truth and to God. And lastly, Ephesians 6 tells us, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of your dumb friends. No. In the unfairness of relationships and in the unfairness of compensation and in the unfairness of difficulties, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, brothers and sisters, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Life isn't fair. It really isn't. Life is not fair, but the scriptures call us to persevere by putting our faith in God, trusting that he is just and he will do what is good. Will not the judge of the earth do what is good? Will he not do what is right? We must cling to those things even as we endure all sorts of unfair realities, the harsh realities of life. Brothers and sisters, when we look to the cross, we should find great comfort and joy for a lot of reasons. One of them is that God has great purposes that he accomplishes through the suffering of the innocent. Job is innocent and yet he is suffering and there are a lot of things that we can learn. But the most important thing we can learn by looking at Job's innocent suffering is that it's a small shadow of what Christ has done. Jesus Christ, though without sin, endured the worst unfairness. He endured a terrible and life filled with suffering and a life in which God poured out his just wrath for my sin, for your sin upon him so that we might be able to be right with God and God still be just. Brothers and sisters, life is unfair, but look to Christ. Look to Christ and be comforted. Look to him in faith and persevere 